This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb, Levi, Joanna, Benton, and Sam. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We have a great set of serious questions for this episode, one from Caleb and one from Levi. We'll start with Caleb's question. Caleb asks, is Zion actually Jerusalem? If it's not, then where is it? Now, Caleb's question is a perfect example of what this podcast, The Big Question, is all about. There's so many things in the Bible that you hear over and over again, and yet no one ever explains them. So there are these questions that seem to never be answered. In our sermon series on Zechariah, for example, we've talked about Zion, we've talked about Mount Zion, we've talked about Jerusalem, we even talked about the New Jerusalem. One of them sounds like a city, the other one sounds like a mountain, but sometimes the way we talk about them makes them sound like they are the same thing. So the question is, what's what? Is Zion the same as Jerusalem? And if it's not, then what is it? Well, long story short, yes, Zion and Jerusalem are the same place. Mount Zion is the hill that the city of Jerusalem was built upon. So in the Bible, you'll often find the word Zion used as another name for the city of Jerusalem. Now here's where it gets interesting. Sometimes Zion and Jerusalem are used, not literally, but symbolically, not to refer to the physical hilltop city of Jerusalem, but to the spiritual land of God or the people of God. So to keep all of this straight in your mind, all you have to remember is this. The city of Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. And so the words Jerusalem and Zion refer to the same place. But sometimes the words refer to the physical location and sometimes they refer to a spiritual reality. Now Levi wants to know this. When we are in the new earth, will we remember things from the old earth? Well, Levi, the short answer is we don't know. All we can do is speculate. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about what the new creation will be like. And there are a lot of questions we have about our life in the world to come that we just don't have concrete answers for. So we have to speculate, as I say, and I'm going to speculate a little bit right now, but I think it's fair to do that because there is a strong case to make for people in the new earth remembering things from the old earth. So let me try to make that case, and and hopefully this will make sense. So memory is an important part of human identity. In fact, it's so important that when people suffer from a loss of memory, which is called amnesia, it's possible that their entire personalities will change. 
to their friends, people who have amnesia, who've lost their memory, they can seem like entirely different people than they used to be. When we are raised from the dead, like Jesus, uh, we will not be different people. We will be the same people that we were before. Our identity will remain unchanged, except we will have been made righteous and we will have spiritual bodies. So we will be in the new earth what human beings were always intended to become, but we won't lose our identity. We won't lose what makes us individually who we are. Now, since we don't lose our identity in the new earth, I think it's likely that we don't lose our memory either because memory and identity seem to go so closely together. Having said that, though, the way that we think about things when we remember them will change dramatically. You know, obviously, in the new earth, you're going to know so much more than you know right now, and you're going to understand so much more than you do now. So your memories of this life, they're going to have a context that will change everything. Now, here's an example that the Bible does give us. If you look in Revelation chapter 21, there it says that God will wipe every tear from our eyes, that in the new creation there will be no death, no mourning, no crying or pain. Now, some people, when they hear that, they think that must mean that our memories of the old earth are wiped away because how could our grief end? How could we not mourn and feel pain and sadness when we remember what happens in the old life? The only way they can imagine that that would happen is if we would have no memory of that life. But I don't think that's right. Here's what I think. The thing that makes the difference that allows us to live without mourning and without pain, that allows us to go back and, and, and look at our memories and see them differently. It's not that we will have lost our ability to remember. It's that we will have gained the presence of God in our lives. And in God's presence, we will be able to remember without grief. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Joanna. In the last episode, if you remember, we talked about why there were four different Gospels, and now Joanna has a great follow-up question. Here it is. Why do different books of the Bible have different details for the same story? Okay, so last time, I said that the four Gospels all tell the same basic story, and that's the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But if you go and read the Gospels, you will find that the way that they tell the story isn't always the same. It's, it's not identical at all. In fact, it can be very different. Let me give you some examples. So, Matthew and Luke both begin their Gospels with the birth of Jesus, more or less. But Mark skips right over that, and he starts with Jesus' baptism. So he doesn't talk about his birth, childhood, anything like that. 
John starts with a theological preface to his gospel, and then he jumps right to the baptism too, just like Mark. Now, although Matthew and Luke both include the story of Jesus' birth, even they don't include all the same details about Jesus' birth. If you read Luke's gospel, Luke actually goes way back, not just before the birth of Jesus, but before the birth of John the Baptist. And he talks about what happened uh, for John the Baptist's birth to be prophesied, the events that took place with his parents. Matthew, on the other hand, he begins with a genealogy that connects Jesus all the way back to King David and Abraham. And when he picks up this story, we have Joseph and Mary in the manger, the story of Jesus' birth that we're all familiar with from the Nativity. So they're telling basically the same story, but they're giving us different pieces of the puzzle, different details. Some are giving a fuller version, and others are giving a much more economical, a shorter version. Now, there are some instances as well in the Gospels where you have the same story being told, by two different authors, but the details are different in the story. Sometimes those details are insignificant, but sometimes they seem to be more than that. For example, if you look in Matthew 26, Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But if you look at Mark's gospel, when he tells the same story, he adds a pretty significant and important detail In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, there's no inherent contradiction between these two accounts. One of them just gives us more fully what was said. They basically say the same thing. But why aren't they exactly the same? If God inspired each author, why doesn't each author write exactly the same words. Well, I think there's an important reason why God inspired four different gospel accounts, and even though he inspired them, maintains differences between those accounts. I think the reason why they differ from one another, the reason why God would do this, can be summed up in a single word, and that word is perspective. Each of the human authors who contribute to God's divine book has his own unique perspective. And when God inspires those authors, he works in them and through them to inspire the writing, but they remain unique individuals. When we say that the Bible is inspired by God, we don't mean that God overruled the human authors, that he took them over, that they went into some kind of a trance and the Holy Spirit just dictated the words to them that they had to write down. That's not the way it happened. The individual authors each had his own memories and understanding, even even their own vocabularies, the words that they knew and the words that they would use. And the Holy Spirit worked through them individually. And so their different books reflect their different experiences, their different levels of knowledge, their different personalities even. That's why Matthew writes like Matthew and Mark writes like Mark. And if you get really familiar with their writing, you can tell the difference between the two not just in their word choice, 
but also in the details that they choose to include and in the parts that they skip over or they summarize. Each author, in other words, has a perspective, and here God wanted to give us multiple perspectives on the same event, the event of Jesus' incarnation. Some of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses to Jesus' incarnation, like Matthew and John. But others, uh, Mark and Luke, those Gospels were written by men who relied on other people's memories in order to write their accounts. Probably it was Peter in the case of Mark and Paul in the case of Luke. In addition to that, the Gospels are written in Greek, which was the common language of people throughout the Mediterranean world at that time. But the words that Jesus actually spoke were in Aramaic. So when the Gospel authors quote Jesus, they're often translating or paraphrasing the words that he actually said. And because of this, we should expect some diversity in their perspectives. So when we read the gospel accounts, we have to do what the police do when they interview all the eyewitnesses at a crime scene. We take those accounts and we look at all of the details and we put them together into a single big picture story. The more eyewitnesses we have, the better, because that gives us all these details to bring into harmony. And that's the key word. Bible scholars, when they talk about this idea of putting the Gospels together. They call that harmonization. So you'll sometimes come across the term, the harmony of the Gospels. That refers to an attempt by a scholar to merge the four Gospel accounts into a bigger, single narrative. Now, I think that God preserved these different perspectives for a lot of different reasons. But one of them is surely this to remind each of us as we read the Gospels that God works in all of us, shaping our perspectives, and that even though the way that the Spirit works in me may be different from how he works in you, we are all part of the same big story of God's salvation. Now for our closing segment, let's take on a few fun questions from Benton and Sam. Benton has been studying military history, which is one of my favorite subjects. He asks, what is your personal favorite Civil War battle? Mine is Vicksburg. Well, Benton, here's an interesting story about that. On long road trips, I used to quiz my wife, Lori, by asking her questions like, who's your favorite general in such and such a war? Or or what was your favorite battle in this war or that war? And of course, because she wasn't very interested in that sort of thing, she wouldn't always have the right answer. And so I would ask, can you name just one general from that war or just one battle just to see how much she could actually remember of things that I had told her. Now, that's the kind of fun that you can have with your friends and family when you study a little bit of history. And if it doesn't sound like fun to you, what can I say? I think it's a lot of fun. 
Now, as far as favorite battles go, Benton, I cannot argue with you one bit. When it comes to the American Civil War, Vicksburg is definitely the most interesting and complicated campaign to study and to read about. The historian Shelby Foote wrote a wonderful account of the Vicksburg campaign that's been published as a standalone book called The Beleaguered City. I have this on audiobook, and I have listened to it dozens of times over the years, and I highly recommend it. In fact, one of those road trips where I quizzed Lori over and over again was actually a visit to the Vicksburg battlefield, which is really fascinating because all the different states who fought in the siege built their monuments on the ground. I think Illinois actually has the best of all of them. And there's even a, a wooden framed old ironclad ship that you can crawl around in when you take the tour. So Vicksburg is definitely a fantastic battle to study. And Benton, I think you should suggest a family vacation to Mississippi sometime to check it out. Now Sam has a question about getting dressed up. He asks, do you like wearing ties? Well, Sam, you've probably guessed that answer already. I certainly do, which is why you see me wearing ties so often. I like neckties and bow ties. Now, in case you're wondering, the big difference between neckties and bow ties is that somebody could grab your necktie and try to strangle you. But if they grabbed your bow tie, it would just kind of untie itself and you would be safe. Now, Sam, if you're going to start wearing ties, I suggest that you learn to tie your own tie. The clip-on kind is definitely easier, kind of like slip-on shoes are easier. But once you learn how to tie the knot correctly, it's a lot of fun to do that. Now, some people think that wearing a tie constricts your neck, and they, they ask, how can you breathe like that? But you can probably tell that I don't have any trouble breathing when I wear a tie, because you have to breathe to talk, and I can talk a lot. As long as your shirt collar isn't too tight, and you don't sense your tie in too much, you'll be just fine. Well, thanks for listening to The Big Question. I look forward to seeing you wearing a tie soon. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.